very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching many things and parables and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sorrow went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, which it did not, sorry, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit, no crop. Other seeds fell up into the good soil, and as they grew up increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones which are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are those the ones on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it, and it bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it, or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen, take care how you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes out to bed at night, sorry, he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and how he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or what, by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed which, when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown... It grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Let's again ask for God's blessing, shall we? Father, this morning we plead with you again for your help. 
And we ask you, O God, as we would open the scriptures together and look into them, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would have freedom in this room, that, Father, he would speak to every need, every heart, every mind in the room, and, Father, he would explain and open the scriptures to us. Father, we ask you for your help now, in Jesus' name, amen. How then do we live as lights for Jesus in this world that we live in? That's what we have called, been called to be, lights of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the most natural way for us to do evangelism? You see all kinds of posts and, and things online on Facebook and YouTube and whatnot about how you're supposed to do evangelism, new ways, new methods, new systems, and so on. What does the Bible tell us about how we are to do evangelism and reach out with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus gives the answer for that in this text in front of us this morning. I want to focus this morning really on verses 21, 22, and 23, and perhaps a little bit of 24 and 25, but really that one paragraph paragraph of 21 to 25. Before I do that, I want to give you the logic of the text and sort of keep the text in its context. If you notice in in verse number 1 of chapter 4, Jesus returns again to the sea and he's teaching all the multitudes. And in verses 2 through 9, he teaches the crowd with a parable, the parable of the seed, the sower, and the soils. And then in verses 10 to 13, Jesus explains to his disciples the purpose of parables and why he uses them and what they're for. And then in verses 13 to 20, Jesus explains the parable of the seed and the sower and the soils to his disciples. And the main point there is to receive the word of God in order to bear fruit. Now, there's two ways we receive it, both as believers and unbelievers. Unbelievers receive the word of God so that they might be saved, and believers receive the word of God that they might grow in their salvation, grow in their knowledge of the living God. Then in verses uh, 21 to 25, Jesus explains to his disciples, still, the outflow of bearing fruit. It's uh, shining the light, and we'll look at that. That's going to be our focus this morning. And then in verses 26 to 29, Jesus explains to the crowd. Now, you notice very easy way to pick this up. If he says there, and he was saying in verse 9, then look down in verse 11, he says, he was saying to them, as he's talking to his disciples. And then in verse number 21, and he was saying to them, he's still speaking to his disciples, verse 24, to them again, he's still speaking to his disciples. And then in verse 26, he was saying, and then it's like the the scene kind of changes, and he's now back with all the crowds, perhaps in a different time or location, and he's now speaking to the crowds again. One of the things you want to keep in your mind as you read through the book of Mark is it's not given in strictly chronological order. It wasn't day one, day two, day three, day four, all the way through Jesus' ministry. What it was was uh, stories and sayings that Mark has gathered together, and he's arranged them in more of a thematic idea than a strictly chronological one. So he puts similar stories and similar sayings together to give us a comprehensive message about Jesus. So they're not all chronological, okay? Luke is more of a chronological gospel, but Mark is more thematic. Uh, you can actually find... For example, chapter 1, when he says, after John the Baptist was taken and arrested and so on, then you find out in chapter 6, it actually records that John the Baptist is taken into captivity and so on. So there's obviously some uh, time discrepancies. It's not discrepancies. It's time is not in chronological sequence. So in the section in front of us, 26 down to the end there, he's back with the crowds and he's speaking to the crowds and giving them more parables. But verses uh, 13, or actually verse Uh, 10 all the way down to verse 25. He's just speaking to his disciples and he's explaining those parables to them. 
And then verse 30 to 34, last of all, he explains the crowd again, the kingdom of God, and compares it to a mustard seed. I want to focus on those verses, 21 through 25. I'm going to read them again to you. It says this, And he was saying to them, his disciples, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it, or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what or how you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. I was working on this all week, and I had a message all figured out and all planned out, and I had outlined everything, and then I came home last night, and I started scratching my head, came home from the Wolf's birthday party, and then I went to a graduation party for Trev Berkshoff, and I took it all apart and wrote it out again. And then this morning I got up, and I looked at it again. I didn't sleep much last night, and I took it apart, and I reworked it again. That's why you don't have a note sheet, because I, I just didn't get to that part before I had to come and do setup. But I want to focus on the, those three things. I want to give three main points to you, and I'll give them to you again and again so you pick them up. Number one, we must prepare the lamp to shine or burn. Okay, preparing the lamp. Number two, we must shine the message of Christ with our life, meaning the way we live. And thirdly, we must shine the message of Christ with our voice. We speak it out. Evangelism will not happen unless we speak the word of God. Those are the three main points. First of all, I studied up little uh, clay lamps, and I actually went online and found pictures of these old clay lamps, and there's a parable in that little lamp, in that one word. There's so much in it, you go through the whole Bible, and you can actually find ways to picture the lamp, and there's so much for us to see about the way in which God uses clay vessels like you and me to shine the light of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ to all the nations. God takes clay. Oh, I've got to be careful. I'll just dive off and spend my whole time here because there's, there's so much to learn of this, but I'll, I'll give you a little bit of it. What they would do is they'd go out and they'd get the clay and they would gather it all up and it'd be dry kind of particles and they would sift it all out with a big sifter machine or a, some kind of a grid to, to get all the bigger particles out. And then they would soak all these granules of clay in water for a couple of days and then they'd get on top of it and they'd actually tread it all out. It actually talks about how God, the potter, is treading out the clay in one of the, one of the prophets. And they would make that clay and they work the water all the way through it until it was totally consistent and get all the air as much as possible out of it. And then they would take it and they put on something called a turnet, which is a little two-wheeled thing with a shaft in the middle and the guy would sit on the floor. Perhaps you've seen pictures of the Middle East and they do this and they get the foot and they, the foot spins the thing like mad and they turn the bowl and they make it and they draw it up and they get it all ready to go. They take it off the plate, put it out in the sun for a couple of days. It would dry a little bit, turn like a hard leather. And they take it and they maybe do some uh, decoration, put some little imprints in it, or they'd paint it or glaze it. And then the best part, they take it and put it all together in a closed kiln, and they would fire that clay, and what would happen is it would change, it would draw every last drop of moisture out of that clay vessel, and it would be now fit and ready to be filled with oil, and take a little piece of uh, flax or, or uh, cotton or whatever they could use for a wick, and they'd carefully shape it, and they'd very, very carefully trim that little wick, slide it into the spout. You've all seen the picture, right? It's like a flat saucer thing with kind of a pinched end on one end, a little hole on top, and the, the wick goes into the little hole, and they'd trim the wick very carefully, and then they'd light it. They wouldn't use a cigarette lighter. They would use a, probably a, <laughs> maybe some sticks to rub together, whatever they would do. Yeah, a cigarette lighter, yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. They would actually use something to light that wick, right? 
And the idea was that the, the wick would draw the oil, the olive oil, up. And as the olive oil would burn in that lamp, I don't know if you know this, but when you burn olive oil, it's a very sweet, pleasant fragrance. And that lamp would be taken and be set up on a high place, maybe a ledge on the wall or on a stand somewhere in the middle of the room. And it talks about in the book of Acts, the big room where they all got together and there was lots and lots of lamps all lit and the place was all lit up by these oil lamps. And the oil lamp would burn with a flame and everybody could see. But the reason why it's so cool is because, listen, what God does with us, he takes us useless lumps of clay, right? He works us to shape us and form us and mold us into the image of Christ. He does it by all kinds of pressure and difficulty. And he uses all kinds of tools throughout of our lives to shape us into Christ's image. And then what's he do with us? He puts us into the fires of adversity, the fires of tribulation, the fires of struggle and pressure. And you know what? They could take the clay little vessel, all different kinds, and they could fire them to different uh, temperatures and different lengths of time. You know the tools that were the most useful, the most durable? The ones that had the longest, hottest firing time. And one of the things I wanted to get across to you, I don't know all of your situations this morning. But I'm absolutely convinced if your situation is anything like mine, you're going through times of difficulty and struggle and trial. And God is using the heat of that adversity to shape you and harden you to set that shape so that you can be a useful tool in the hands of the living God. And I want to tell you this morning, listen, God needs to prepare the lamp to shine the gospel message brightly. He has to do three things. Number one, he has to fill you with oil. Number two, he has to trim the wick. And number three, he has to set you exactly where you will shine the brightest light wherever he puts you. So number one, he fills us with oil. And you could say, what does that oil speak of? And all through the Bible, there's anointing oil used from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. And it's a picture of the Spirit of God, right? The Old Testament, high priest, prophet, and king, they were all anointed with oil. There's a beautiful scene. Moses is out there and, and brings Aaron out to the front of the tabernacle. And he stands there and his, his four sons are with him. And they're all dressed in those gorgeous robes and the beautiful colors, the gold, the purple, and the silver, and the thread all woven together. And he takes that fragrant anointing oil and he walks up to Aaron and he reaches up and he just pours it on top of Aaron's head. And the Bible describes the oil going down his turban and down his beard and down his clothes and down his arms. It just dripped off in the ground. He literally gave him like an oil baptism kind of thing in midair and Aaron stood there with this oil this fragrant oil coming off him and everywhere Aaron went you could smell the fragrance of that anointing oil and listen when we come to faith in Jesus Christ we're saved and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit we're filled with God's Holy Spirit and as we are burning if you like if we are shining the light of Christ from the Spirit of God that's within us you know what it gives off a fragrant smell of Christ and a bright light to show the message of the living God to all the nations around. How are the nations going to hear? Because we do some program? Because we have some kind of a system or a network? No. The gospel, gospel is going to reach the nations because men and women who are filled with the Spirit of God and set alight by God and set up in a high place where they can be seen, they will give off the fragrance of Christ and they will give off a light that will show Christ to everywhere they go. 
He fills us with his oil. I believe also he fills us with three things regarding the Holy Spirit. Number one, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Number two, the power of the Holy Spirit. And number three, the word of the Holy Spirit. We often forget about the word of the Holy Spirit. It's the Bible. And we need to be filled with the power of the Spirit of God. What did Paul say when he came to Corinth to preach? I did not come preaching in the wisdom of men and the wisdom of words, the wisdom of logic. I came preaching in the power of the Spirit of God. And what we need to do is what Paul was talking about in the book of Ephesians in chapter 5. He said, listen, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. What does he mean? Some groups have taken that thing and gone one off in one direction and said, it means a second baptism. All of a sudden you can do all kinds of amazing things. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the power of the Spirit of God in our lives as our lives are lived in such a way that we do not hinder the influence of the Spirit of God in us. It's a life of godliness that allows the Spirit of God to influence and work through us. We're to be filled with the Spirit of God. The second thing is we're to be trimming the wick. Now, what they would do is on the, uh, on the boats, apparently in the sailing boats, uh, even into the latter centuries, they have these oil lamps all over the boat. And because oil lamp and fire in a wooden boat wasn't the best idea, because what the most... You know, he catches fire and the thing burns to the ground and you've got nothing to float in. So they had to be very careful. The, the little receptacles were very small and it had to be constantly filled up. And one guy had a job and he would go around the whole boat on a regular basis and he would top up the oil lamps and he had to take a pair of scissors or a knife and he had to very carefully, and it was quite a skilled job to trim off the end of that wick. And it had to be a certain shape, either a rounded shape or a wedge shape. And what it did was, if it did exactly right, the lamp would burn clear and hot and bright. If he did it poorly, you know what happened? Smoke. It would just come pouring off that wick and it'd be cloudy. The light would be dim and it would, it would diffuse and it would kind of uh, shade out the light. And in our lives, we need to be filled with the Spirit of God, but we also need to be trimming the wick of our lives. What does that mean for us? What it means is we need to be living lives of godliness. What is the most powerful tool we have for evangelism? It's not tracts and pamphlets and four spiritual laws and all of those things. The most powerful tool that God has given us, he's used it for centuries, is this. The power of a life lived in godliness everywhere we go. It's a godly life. That's what God wants to use. He can create a program. We can plug it in, turn it on, up go the lights, on go the smoke machines, and, and all kinds of wild things can happen. No, that's not how God works. He takes little clay lamps who are absolutely useless without any oil inside them. He lights them up on fire, and he lets them burn bright for God. He makes sure the lamp is trimmed off, so godliness is our lifestyle, and that way the light burns hot and clear, and everybody can see it. There has to be in our lives a pursuit of godliness. God has driven that into my heart over the last couple of weeks again and again and again. You want to be useful for ministry? It's not all the books you read. They're definitely helpful, and I'm happy to take any books you want to give me to read. I'll read more books. Don't get me wrong. It's not that. It's not how well you can preach. It certainly isn't that. It's not how well you can do all kinds of administrative things around the church. I'll tell you what it is. It's the power of a godly life lived burning hot for Jesus Christ. That's what God uses. What's he's always used? 
Revival sparked through England and America because men and women, ordinary farmers and bakers and blacksmiths and carpenters got on fire for God and lived for God. They put off the worldly pursuits. They put off sin and put on Christ. That's what changed this nation and other nations for God. It's godliness. The third thing I want you to know is we burn brightly wherever God has put you. Listen, I don't know where God's put you. It might be in a classroom. It might be on a work site. It might be in an accountant's office. It might be in an engineer's office. It might be in a sales office. It might be behind a desk somewhere. And some of you, young moms, God bless you. You got one of the greatest jobs in all the world. God has put you in a home with three little kids. I was thinking often this week, you know that little little ditty that you hear? The hand, the rocks, the cradle rules the world. The mums, remember Susanna Wesley? She'd get all her kids and she'd they'd be there. I think she had like seven kids, right? Can't imagine that, right? Seven little ones, right? And they knew. No, I didn't have, no, I couldn't imagine. No, I'm not going to get myself out of that one no matter what I do. I couldn't imagine having sick kids at home, though. And her husband, Mr. Wesley, was off gone. He was off in business in some other part of the world. He only came home, I think, once a month or thereabouts. But Susanna Wesley raised her kids with the Bible in one hand and a wooden spoon in the other one. And they knew the discipline, the fear of both their mother and the Lord. And what she did was she got there when she had her time with God. She pulled her apron up over her head and she would stay behind that apron and she would pray and read the scriptures and she would dwell with God in those moments. Listen, young moms, you have an incredible privilege to raise your kiddos for Christ, teaching them the Bible stories, teaching them little songs that will tell them about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where God's put you. Shine. If God's put you in a classroom and the, and the school says, don't say a word, shine anyway. God's put you on a job site, you'd be amazed how some guys will get out of working if they can have a conversation about something. Raise Christ and start talking about the Lord Jesus. I had a great chong I told you a couple weeks ago with one of the guys I worked with for half an hour, he followed me around the job site while I'm working, putting on door handles and stuff, and he's chatting away about our faith and what we believe and what does it mean, all that kind of stuff. Listen, it doesn't matter where you are. You don't have to be on top of a platform or a pulpit in front of thousands of people to preach Christ. You just have to shine where God has put you. Don't ever give up the idea that you have to, you, you can just work where you are. God puts you where he puts you for a reason. God has got you going through the difficulties and hardships he's putting you through for a reason so that you can shine the light of the gospel in that place, in that moment. We burn brightly wherever God has put us. The second thing I want you to notice is this. We shine the good news of the kingdom of God first with our life and second with our words. I'll give you the the how first, and then I'll give you the why and what it comes from. Actually, I'll go around. Let's look at verse 22. He says this, verse 22, For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to, and so on. Verse number 22 is a little bit cryptic. What's he talking about? Now, we know, because we were looking at the clarity of Scripture uh, two weeks ago in our systematic theology study, so that the Bible is clear. But sometimes our ability to understand it is a little bit foggy, like mine. I'm going, what does he mean? What's he talking about? But what you can do is take your fingers, step back over to chapter 4 and verse 11, and he says this to the disciples, so it's probably the same conversation or one similar. He says, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Then in verse number 22 talks about things that are hidden except to be revealed, things that are uh, nothing 
sorry, been secret, that it would come to light. What's he talking about? He's talking about revealing the kingdom of God. In Scripture, whenever you have a mystery mentioned, it means that something that's been kept kept hidden and secret through the Old Testament times is now being revealed in the New Testament times. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, no, the lamp isn't put under a bed. It's not put under a basket. It's put up on a light so that it gives light to everybody in the room. And the light shines on something that was hidden for a time but has now been revealed. He's saying, listen... The light that you're shining on is the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the light all about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is now being explained and exposed to the people of God. So what do we preach? What do we share with our lives and our words? We preach this. We describe the glories of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and our King. He is ruling and reigning in our lives. If you want an easy way to remember and understand the kingdom of God and how it works, because people say, well... Jesus isn't on the throne of David yet, so how is he ruling and reigning and so on? Think of it like this. Very simple illustration. Who here has ever caught a train around Melbourne somewhere? We've all caught a train at some point. Some of you, yeah, train every day. All right? Train has a long thing. It's got a locomotive at one end and a caboose at the other end, and it's got a platform that everybody stands on. So you stand on the platform and you're watching. You always tell when the train's coming because everybody makes that mad rush up to the edge of the, the yellow line. They all stand there ready to get in the door and they all know where they have to stand to get into the right door to get on the right carriage and so on. And the moment that locomotive lands, if, if the platform was cut, say, in half, and it was only half as long, imagine that for a second. So you're standing on that little short platform and the train comes rocking around the corner and it rocks up and the locomotive is standing right in front of you. You could say the train is here. But the problem is half the carriage and the caboose are still off the far end of the platform. You can't get on them. So the strain, the train is not all here. It's just here in part. So the kingdom of God, Jesus' rule and reign in the lives of his people is already, but not yet. And what it means is it's already here, but not in its fullness yet. That fullness is in a day to come. So when we go out and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the rule and reign of Christ in our lives. So what we do is we describe all the glories of Jesus, our King. We tell about the wonder of his omnipotence and his omniscience, his immensity. We talk about how the fact that he never changes. We talk about all the glories of who Jesus is. A wonderful Savior that he is. We describe to them the darkness of sin. And we describe sin in terms of our rebellion against the king. That's what it is, isn't it? When we sin, we are breaking God's laws. And breaking God's laws is rebellion against the king. And what the king is going to do in a day to come, like we were seeing earlier in the service, he's going to come in judgment and he's going to judge the nations. And all those that were obedient to the law of the king will be on one side and all those who are disobedient on the other side. He's going to separate the nations like that. And the beautiful thing is, see, here's our problem. Our problem isn't sin. It's not sin. Our problem is that God is really good. Right? You say, how's that a problem? The problem is that God is really good, but we're all really, really bad and we're all sinners 
So you say, yes, then the problem really is sin. Well, yes, the problem is sin, you're right. But the bigger problem is the fact that God is really good. And God is so good and God is so holy that he will not accept anything that's sinful in his presence. He will have nothing to do with it. And we describe to those around us in our words what that means, that Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to judge all the nations because of rebellion against him as the king. And then we turn around and we describe the immensity, the glory, the beauty of the grace of the living God, that he didn't just leave us to face that judgment on our own. He stepped in between us and his own wrath, and he bore the wrath of God for us. And we describe the glory of the grace of the living God. We describe the glory of the person of Christ who came and who suffered and died for us. We describe all that. We give them the gospel call. It says, listen, this beautiful privilege can be yours. God invites you and calls you to repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. We tell them that. We listen, we shine the message of the gospel like that lamp. We do it in two ways. We shine it with our mouth, number one. At the very same time and wrapped in together and maybe even preceding our mouth, we describe it with our lives. How do we do that? We're living lives of godliness. Why is it so important that we live lives of putting off sin and putting on Christ? It's because that's what people notice. We live lives of godliness. We live our lives in the joy of the Lord. You know what the book of Acts says about the disciples? They were continually filled with the joy of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It was a continual thing. Everywhere they went, that joy just exuded off them. Yeah, how'd they get that joy? They got that joy because they understood what Jesus Christ had done for them. They understood what God had done for them in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live our lives in the joy of the Lord. We live a life that pleases the Lord. Take your Bibles and flip over to 2 Corinthians 5. We were there a little earlier, but 2 Corinthians 5, a little... uh, If you ever get a card from me, birthday card, graduation card, marriage card, baby card, something, you probably get to see 2 Corinthians 5, 9 written on there. Almost always write that. Here's why. It's, it's one of my favorite verses. Not, I know I've got a lot of favorite verses, but this is one of them. And it goes like this. Let's read from verse number 6, just to get the context. He says, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. Is that your goal in life? To live a life that pleases the Lord? To live a life that's striving to be like Christ, that's striving to be godly in every area of your life, that's striving to put off all of the old sinful things. How many times do we go and we plead with God for his help? We plead with the power of the Spirit of God to live this life and we turn around and do the very things that grieve the Spirit of God, that grieve God in us. It's totally inconsistent. It's like wanting the light to burn brightly in that little lamp and then taking a cork and just shoving it in the end of it and saying, well, burn. You've got to pull the cork out. It doesn't work. The, the oil can't get up. The light can't burn. It doesn't work. You've got to pull those sinful things out that grieve the Spirit of God. We live, we strive to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. We live our lives with a sense of God in everything. We were watching... Um, a movie called uh, Gods and Generals. We were telling the wolves about this the other night. It's a movie made. Uh, Ted Turner, 
who is not a Christian by any stretch of imagination, made this movie probably about 10, 15 years ago. It's a story about all these uh, men and women on both sides of the Civil War uh, war in the United States in the 1860s. And what's really neat is they you obviously use letters and writings and, and uh, stuff produced at the time to influence all of the text and all of the vocab and all of the, um, the speeches used. And what, what just kind of impressed on my heart is I watched Stonewall Jackson, who was a devout believer in the Lord Jesus, and in one scene, I think I've told some of this already, but in one scene in the movie, he's up on his horse, and he's a great big man, big beard, and, and they're fighting the battle, and he's on his horse, and he has like a notepad, and he's, he's making notes, and he's tearing them off and giving them to his aide-de-camps, and the aides are running off on their horses like mad, and they're uh, giving the directions to, to steer the battle. And the bullets are whipping around his head, and there's shells going off and coming over. And you see these guys, and the, the dumbest way to fight known to man, they line up in a nice long line, standing upright with rifles, and they just walk across the field, giving the biggest possible target to the enemy. That's how they did it. And, the, the, and you see these guys, they're getting shot, and you see the bodies just crumpling down. They just keep right on walking along. And he's standing on his horse there, or he's sitting on his horse, and the horse is standing. And, and he's moving back and forth, you know. And the bullets are going around, and, and the bombs are going off, and he's just standing there like as calm as can be. At the end of the battle, he's walking across the battlefield, and there's all these dead bodies lying on the ground. And he's grieving because all these men have died. And one of his aides finally turns and says, Sir, how is it? How is it that you can sit there on your horse in the middle of a battle, bullets whipping around your heads, bombs going off, and you're as calm as can be. And he looks at the man and he said, young man, he said, God has fixed the day of my death. I need not concern myself for that. He said, if I live every day prepared to meet my maker, if all of us lived every day to prepare to meet our maker, we could so endure those kind of battles. I've obviously messed up his line a little bit, but that was the sense of it. And what impressed me as I watched that movie and listened to these men on both sides, the north and the south, describing their relationship with the living God and describing how they're going into battle and talking about providence and talking about God's will and God's direction and may God keep me safe and how Stonewall Jackson being in the battle he goes out in the field early in the morning. There's no one there. The sun's just coming up. And he's standing about for this and he's praying. And the words come out of his mouth just shocked me. If I was a secular guy making a secular movie about a war, I wouldn't include a general standing on a battlefield with his hands lifted up to heaven, crying out to God to please him this day. Those men lived with a sense of God that somehow in our day and age we've lost that sense. Everywhere they went, whatever they were doing, they had a sense that God was with them. Every scene, every happening that went on in their lives, they saw God in it. And I think the reason, one of the ways, sorry, that we're going to be effective for evangelism is if we live our lives with a sense of God wherever we go. And which means what? Which means we're constantly communing with Him. We're constantly in His presence. We're constantly enjoying Him. We're taking Scripture wherever we go. Memorizing Scripture, reading it over, mulling it over, chewing it over our minds so it reflects and influences every single part of our lives. How are we going to reach this world for the message of Jesus Christ? We can come up with a thousand programs and a thousand systems and a thousand ways to do it. But you know what God's way is? It's men and women shining brightly like lamps and God puts them where he wants them and he uses them how he wants to use them. And they shine the message of the gospel brightly wherever they are. 
whether it's an office building or a schoolroom or a workshop or whatever it is. Jesus said, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it, or under a bed. It is not brought to be put, sorry, is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? Where's God placed you? What is God doing with you in your life? The critical thing is not how much training you have. The critical thing is how much of a hold of your life does God have? The critical thing is how much is the word of God in your life? The critical thing is how much are you pleading with God for the power and the presence of the spirit of God in your life to enable you to speak and to live in a way that pleases him? How much are you striving to put off every trace of sin and the life that displeases the Lord? Put it away. The Bible talks about how we ought to be vessels clean for the masters. Take your Bibles, go over to uh, 2 Timothy 2. There it is, verse 20. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 20, he says this. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. What's required of us? An oil lamp to be clean for God's use. To be putting off the sin that hinders and stops the oil from flowing through to the wick. It's for trimming that wick off and making sure it doesn't smoke and it burns hot and bright for God. That's how we're going to see this world, this community, your friends, your neighbors, your family reach for Jesus Christ. God wants to use us. They, um, they say in archaeology one of the most useful things is pottery shards. I couldn't think of a more unuseful thing in my life. You, you, you drop a cup. Right, we were talking the other day about um, when we were early married, and um, Heather and I were having a discussion. And in that part of that discussion, um, I I just kicked this thing. Not Heather, don't worry. I, I kicked this uh, what was a plastic thing on the floor or something, and I just kind of kicked it out of the way. You know, didn't wasn't angry. Just get out of the way. And this thing went skidding across the floor. And we had this little cabinet thing, a little piece of junk cabinet. But in the bottom of the cabinet were all these beautiful. Um, crystal champagne glass things, you know. And I think that little piece of plastic went across the floor and boom, hit the bottom of the thing. And he saw that the glasses go like this inside the cabinet. And one of them went and rolled over it. And it was almost like slow motion. And I'm running, you know, oh no, across. And it rolled, bang, hit the ground. And the glasses went everywhere, the crystal, sorry. And so then the discussion was over because... I did more listening than speaking at that particular point. And uh, we clean up all the crystal and, and put it all away. No, she didn't yell at me, really. And uh, I think, what possible use is that little piece of broken glass? It's useless. You throw it away. Archaeologists say pottery shards tell them so much. They, they tell you, they explain layers and levels of history in pottery shards. And they keep them all and they gather them all up. And listen, God wants to use us. And a broken lamp isn't much use. But a lamp that's cleaned out, a lamp that's filled with oil, a lamp that's trimmed off, 
and burning brightly, a lamp that allows itself to be put wherever God wants to put it to shine brightly. God will use it. Even if you're in a home with three little kiddos and you think, I'll never get out of this. I'm stuck here. God has given you a tremendous ministry to raise kids for Jesus Christ. If you're sitting in an office and you work with people who hate Jesus and hate any mention of him, God is using, God puts you there for a purpose. You work in a, in a hospital where I know Christians are frowned on and looked down upon. And we have friends who, is a, she's a nurse, and she gets constant abuse for her faith. God has put you there for a purpose. God sets you on that lampstand. Where, it's in a bank. It's in an accountant's office, engineer's office, wherever it is. God has put you there for a purpose. The question is, are we willing to be lamps for Jesus Christ? Are we willing to prepare those lamps, be filled with oil, to trim the wick, to shine brightly and burn for Jesus? Does that make sense? All right. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer, and then I think we're going to sing one more song. Would you stand with me? We'll close. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we give you thanks again that you use clay vessels. And Father, we realize that without the filling of your Holy Spirit, without the word of God bearing fruit in our lives, we are useless. But Father, we give you thanks that when we trusted you, that moment we came to faith in you, you sealed us with the Spirit of God. And Father, you inspired Paul to write, be filled with the Spirit. And Father, we would ask you that we would live lives that would not hinder and not grieve the Spirit of God, that we might be filled with His Spirit, that we might preach and teach and talk and share and gossip the gospel everywhere we go. Father, we pray that we would be lights shining brightly in what area we have been put in. Father, we plead with you. Use us for your glory. Burn us up, in a sense, O God, for your glory. Help us, O God, to describe and to declare and to show with both our lives and our voices the glory of the living God to all those who will listen, all those who will watch. Father, we ask you for a great revival. Father, but not a revival of programs or systems. Father, but a revival of men and women who are determined to live their lives for the living God. Father, we ask you for these things and we give you thanks, O God, for your grace and your love. We thank you, O God, now for our time in the Word. Father, we pray that as we go away from this place, that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and impress it home and bring forth fruit from it. Fruit to your glory and fruit to your honor. Father, we ask you these things and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.